ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Major flooding in Libya has left thousands of people dead after a storm dumped torrential rain in some areas. The coastal city of Derna in Libya's northeast has been devastated. The path of devastation that cut its way through Derna, from the broken dams 12 kilometres inland all the way to the sea. More than 11,000 people are confirmed to have perished and questions are being asked about the maintenance of two dams that collapsed nearby. Derna, a port city in eastern Libya, had a population of around 90,000 until the night of the 10th and 11th of September, when a wall of water swept a large part of the city and its population into the sea. The cause of the disaster in Derna was the catastrophic failure of two dams. The long-term cause was the ongoing failure of the Libyan state. Libya is one of the richest nations in North Africa, with a small, well-educated population. And after the overthrow of Gaddafi in 2011, it should have become a functioning, successful state. Instead, it descended into political chaos and civil war. Why is Libya a failed state? That's the question we're trying to answer on this Rear Vision with me, Annabel Quince. Gaddafi ruled Libya for 42 years before he was overthrown in 2011. While some of Libya's current problems can be traced back to his rule, that's not the only story. Ethan Choran is a former US diplomat who was posted to Libya between 2004 and 2006. He's also the author of Benghazi, A New History. Libya is a oil state. Oil was discovered in commercial quantities in Libya in 1958 or 59, and oil has determined the economic structure of Libya ever since. So Gaddafi had lots of oil wealth with which to distribute as patronage to those who supported him and the general public at large. Gaddafi started out rather idealistic as a 26-year-old coup leader back in 1969, but that idealism eroded over time as he felt that the population was not uh, that enthusiastic about his economic and political programs. Some of the things he did do which were beneficial were to bring the, the basic level of literacy and health care up to a some sort of a minimum standard under King Idris, from whom he took power and a bloodless coup, the country at the time exhibited aspects of great disparity in, in income. Part of the prevalence of his revolution was both Arab nationalism, but also you know, addressing that disparity. Under Gaddafi's rule, the lower classes, the workers, the marginalized towns, the rural communities prospered. They raised the minimum wage, housing was constructed, education reached rural and poor communities, and women continue to make progress. I am Professor Ali Abdullatif Amida. I am the founding chair of the political science department at University of New England in the state of Maine. Politically, it was very controlled, very populist, and very intolerant of opposition. But at the same time, they were modernizing, using the oil revenues to build the infrastructure, to spend on housing, the army. And then Gaddafi, after the 1980s, faced opposition in the Arab world and opposition inside Libyan society. And that hostility led to a more security-oriented 
mindset and his populist regime and program began to stall and economically became really capricious and rely only on loyalty, not on competence and qualified people. And despite the social gains for women and poor and impoverished communities, the obsession with security began to undermine even the gains that were achieved in the first 15 years after 1969. And economically, the country became really stalled. The infrastructure began to deteriorate. By the time of the Arab Spring in 2011, the Libyan state and its infrastructure were starting to crumble. As Mary Fitzgerald from the Middle East Institute in Washington explains. I remember my first visit to Libya was in 2011. I was then a journalist and arrived in Benghazi, Libya's second city, just days after the very first protest against the Gaddafi regime broke out there. And I remember how shocked I was at the poor state of the infrastructure in what was then, at least on paper, one of Africa's wealthiest countries. In Benghazi, there were unpaved roads in several neighborhoods. I saw hospitals where doctors were struggling with very basic equipment. And in Derna, uh, the town hit by the floods this month, the situation was even worse. The neglect was even more evident there. So the challenges Libya has faced in terms of infrastructure date way back to the Gaddafi regime. During that time, the country's infrastructure was beyond creaking, we can say. But since 2011, when Libya descended into civil conflict from 2014 until 2020, of course, the situation worsens. What was infrastructure that was beyond creaking during the Gaddafi era essentially started collapsing as a result of poor maintenance in the transitional period after his overthrow, but also the effects of that civil conflict. The protests that began the Arab Spring in Libya started in Benghazi in February 2011. But unlike the other uprisings, the Libyan uprising led to a civil war and an international military intervention by NATO. For months, NATO airstrikes have targeted Colonel Gaddafi's forces and his strongholds in Libya. You can't really always anticipate everything the Gaddafi regime will try to do. This is a vicious regime. They are in their death throes. There will have been thousands of people in the army loyal to Gaddafi and mercenaries paid by Gaddafi who are still out there with weapons. He and his elite underestimated the waves of social protest in Tunisia and in Egypt. Then the wave came to Libya and the Libyan people began to, especially the youth, Benghazi and women, began to protest. And he thought he would be able to crush them as he has crushed other protest movements in Libya. It was too late. The wave was so powerful. And enter the Security Council and the NATO giving permission to protect civilians. NATO took that to change the regime. 
Libya's uprising very quickly became an armed uprising, largely because the Gaddafi regime responded to those initial protests with violence. And there were a number of speeches by Gaddafi and members of his regime, again, threatening violence against the the protesters. This led to a fear that civilians would be endangered on a mass scale, either in Benghazi or elsewhere in the country. We knew that if we waited one more day, Benghazi could suffer a massacre that would have reverberated across the region and stained the conscience of the world. I refused to let that happen. Benghazi in eastern Libya was where the uprising started. It was where it gathered momentum. There were protests also in Tripoli, the capital in western Libya, that were also met with violence. So the UN resolution 1973, which was passed in March of that year, authorizing this intervention in Libya, it had a humanitarian mandate in that it was for the protection of civilians. That resolution was supported by the Arab League, and this was in comparison to the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2004. This had a U.N. Security Council mandate. It had the support of the Arab League. There was considerable support for the intervention, including inside Libya. The revolution was made up of multiple elements. It really was a diverse national effort, but there were groups with very different agendas for what they wanted to see at the end of this process. And the westernizing reformers were one camp, but they were, as they are in many other countries, disjointed, not unified. And then you had the, crudely put, the Islamist groups that essentially saw this as an opportunity to not only get rid of Gaddafi, but uh, form a very different kind of state, which would be based on Sharia law and the implementation of Islamic law. As the intervention to save Benghazi took on an element of mission creep, something that former Defense Secretary Gates warned explicitly of, that once we go in, we're going to have a hard time controlling the process, and it'll lead to things that we may not be able to control or fix, which is exactly what happened. The uprising, which was courageous and peaceful, was militarized. And the militarization was a consequence of the repressive policies and the overreaction by the Gaddafi's regime and the NATO intervention. The NATO intervention was devastating. It led to the destruction of the Libyan army and also after defeating the old regime. The NATO forces withdrew and left Libyan people prey to radicals, criminals, opportunistic forces, and the Libyan borders were open to thousands of immigrants. One of the main challenges in post-Gaddafi Libya is the challenge of the armed groups that sprang up during the uprising against Gaddafi, the armed groups that emerged after his fall, and how one actually demobilizes those armed groups, integrates them into uh, proper national security forces, and how the Libyan state basically ensures it has a monopoly on force. None of that has been achieved yet, and we're 12 years on from the fall of Gaddafi. We have to keep in mind the opposition to Gaddafi's regime was made of a coalition. What unified all of them is opposition to the regime that they thought was hopeless and not reformable. But at the same time, there were many, many contradictions and conflict among them. They did not agree, what are you going to do after you get rid of the regime? What's your vision? What would be the peaceful transition to finish 
the business of rule of law, building institutions, open press, free elections, and other missing elements, instead of trying to really undermine everything in the country. I think part of the problem was that the United States, for example, was very much focused on democracy promotion. But what Libya really needed at that point was order and institutions, because essentially in our sort of fear of committing another bungle is the Iraq war, we wound up basically repeating it in the sense that we created a, a vacuum. A political vacuum, which and, and it stood for a year and allowing all kinds of elements to come in and, and essentially grow and build their own agendas. I think that's one of the major problems is the, the international community was not prepared to, to follow the second chapter of what was called the responsibility to protect, which was the so-called responsibility to rebuild. There was no rebuilding. What we had was with that lengthy period of disorder and lack of institution building or replacement, no jobs, growth of militias, huge amount of loose weapons that were looted from Gaddafi's stores and not blown up when we intervened, we wound up with a volatile situation. Despite the instability, there was an election in Libya in 2012. A parliament was elected to write a constitution and transition the nation to some form of democratic state. I was in Libya in 2012 for those elections that basically resulted in the installation of Libya's first post-Gaddafi parliament and known as the General National Congress. And I remember the mood that day. There was a huge turnout, a lot of enthusiasm. Many Libyans were voting for the first time in their lives. And there was a sense that, oh, we have achieved this now and we are progressing in our transition. Later that year, the episode that I think was the first very dark note in the transition that really kind of changed a lot of dynamics internally in Libya, but also in the international approach to Libya, was the attack in Benghazi on a U.S. diplomatic mission where the ambassador, Chris Stevens, and a number of his colleagues were killed. So that cast a dark cloud. It also affected the U.S. engagement with Libya. There was a sense the Obama administration really started to distance itself from the Libya file at, at that point. But to go back to internal Libyan dynamics, that parliament that was elected, they were accused of basically looking after their own interests, pursuing different ideological and other objectives. And it soon became a very unpopular body, this GNC, as it was known. And a lot of popular frustration about other challenges in the transition tended to be focused on this parliament. The parliament itself failed to meet some of the goals it was tasked with, primarily the idea of getting a constitutional drafting process in train. And so there were many calls for the dissolution of this parliament, many calls for fresh elections. And finally, in 2014, those new elections were, were set. But 2014 was a very crucial year. It was the year Libya tipped into civil conflict for a whole range of reasons, including operations launched by a commander, Khalifa Haftar, the de facto power in eastern Libya today. This week, troops loyal to the former Libyan general, Khalifa Haftar, launched an offensive in Libya's second largest city of Benghazi to regain ground after Islamist groups overran several army camps and pressed close to the airport, the last bastion of government presence in the city. 
by 2014, you had the last set of free, somewhat in quotes, elections. The elections were contested and the elected government decamped to the east and the Western government was essentially made up of the people who lost that election. Western groups that coalesced around the capital of Tripoli had the advantage of 42 years of government infrastructure and it was a collection of local power brokers, militias, Islamist groups backed by external powers on one side. And in the East, you had the emergence of General Khalifa Haftar, who had been at one point one of Gaddafi's lead generals, but had flipped to the West and been a plan B for the West overthrowing Gaddafi. To some people, he's a hero. To others, he's a villain. What he did was he built up the essentially most cohesive military force in the country. And after the Benghazi attack, the attack on the U.S. mission, essentially eastern Libya fell to various radical Islamist groups and their proxies, uh, al-Qaeda, ISIS. So you had this lengthy, protracted battle in the east between forces of Haftar and various Islamist coalitions. And... You had lots of foreign powers intervening in favor of one party or the other for a whole host of, of reasons, whether they were concerned about the proliferation of terrorist groups from Libya, particularly after several very uh, public attacks in Paris and, and Manchester. And it's one of these things where it's like a process that if there actually had been some sort of a robust will and plan to restructure and support Libya with what it needed from a security perspective and a, an economic development perspective, things could have been quite different. But leaving it alone, it's just gone from bad to worse to worse to worse. And the political appetite of anyone to do anything or think of some kind of a new approach to this has been virtually nil. To go back to those operations that Haftar launched in May 2014, the declared aim of those operations was to root out extremists that had embedded themselves in Benghazi and other parts of eastern Libya. And because Benghazi in particular had been hit by a string of assassinations and bombings, there was initially a significant amount of public support for Haftar's operation. However, at that time, I met Haftar a couple of weeks into his operation. I met him in eastern Libya. And what was really striking about that meeting was when I asked him what his long-term objectives were, he was evasive. And leaving the meeting, I asked one of his advisors, what is Haftar's ultimate objective? A lot of people out there are wondering, what is the ultimate aim here? His critics and opponents are already suspecting that his operation is merely a pretext for his own ambitions, his own political ambitions. And his advisor told me, well, what he wants is to rule Libya. And this is what we need. We need somebody like him to rule Libya. So one of the key drivers in the civil conflict that started that year was basically Haftar and his forces versus those who were no fans of the extremists and certainly wanted the extremists to be tackled. However, they saw this operation as a pretext for Haftar's own ambitions to be military ruler. And they were adamant that they would oppose those plans at any cost. So that was a key driver of the conflict that started in 2014 and had different iterations in the years after. 
There have also been external actors. Can you explain the role these actors have played in the conflict in Libya? This has been a key aspect of Libya's civil conflict. Many Libyans have said to me over the years that they believe that if Libya's wars did not have the additional element of these external actors, Libyans would have actually made their peace long before now. I'm not sure I find that completely convincing, but certainly the role of external actors in Libya's conflicts has been key. So since 2014, the foreign actors in Libya's conflict have lined up in two broad camps. One, supporting Haftar and his wider camp. His um, allies include the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, Jordan, Russia, and France. France has given diplomatic and political support to Haftar over the years, very much empowered him in that respect. The United Arab Emirates and Egypt and Russia have, according to several reports, violated the UN arms embargo on Libya numerous times in support of Haftar. On the other side, and bearing in mind that it's a side where the politics have changed and the political figures and the prominent figures have changed, but we can call it the kind of anti-Haftar or non-Haftar side, their allies have been Turkey and also Qatar. So in 2019, when Khalifa Haftar launched an offensive to try and capture the capital Tripoli and overthrow the then transitional government, his backers were Russia, the UAE and Egypt, the government in Tripoli reached out to Turkey and asked for Turkish assistance. And it was primarily as a result of that Turkish intervention that Haftar's offensive failed. So since the end of that war, you essentially have, because Russia really stepped up its support of Haftar during that war, So since then, inside Libya, in terms of presence on the ground, you have a considerable Russian presence in eastern Libya, which includes Wagner mercenaries and other Russian military personnel. And then in western Libya, you have a significant Turkish presence. What led to the ceasefire between these two camps in 2020? That ceasefire was the product of a UN-brokered process. It did not just include the cessation of hostilities, but a key part of it was also this agreement that foreign forces in Libya would depart sooner rather than later. There has been very little in terms of the departure of foreign fighters from Libya since 2020. So I'm just wondering what this has meant The chaos that has ensued and the sort of lack of governance post-2011, what that's meant in terms of Libya's oil wealth and whether or not infrastructure, schools, education has been able to develop or even been maintained over the last 12 years or so? (laughs) Well, that's the irony, Annabelle. Education and medical care are supposed to be free under Gaddafi and under the monarchy. But now the infrastructure, the, the healthcare system collapsed. So people sell their own jewelry and they borrow money to go to Tunisia or go to Egypt for treatment. And there was no investment or any kind of building in the last 10 years, with the exception maybe some cities like Tripoli now. In a nutshell, no development because there was no stability and people are surviving by minimal, minimum salaries. The struggle now is not really about unity or Libyan patriotism or Libyan traditions or so. It's about how can I hold my power? How can I get more revenues and booty? And the oil money has not really reached the large 
number of the Libyan people up until now. And that's really the tragic thing. Corruption is so widespread. It certainly hasn't developed. It certainly hasn't been maintained. It's atrophied. It's been destroyed. Derna is such a powerful example that I think is felt deeply by the majority of Libyans. This was a disaster that is the result of successive failures of state building. Over 11,000 people died the night of the flood in Derna. Could the scale of the disaster shift the political stalemate in Libya? It's been very striking for me this past couple of weeks to see how the conversation about what happened in Derna outside Libya, how it differs from the conversation inside Libya. So outside Libya, it seems to be very much a story that people associate with climate change, whereas inside Libya, it's a story really that most people associate with neglect and poor governance. There were already a lot of warnings before the floods happened about the poor state of those two dams. The dams were built in the 1970s. I have been told that the last time they were properly repaired was in 2002, so during the Gaddafi era. But in recent years, there were many warnings about the risks associated with their uh, state of disrepair. And because of this, and because of the fact that the council, the municipal council in Derna, received funds to maintain infrastructure in the town, many local people claim that those funds basically vanished with little to show for them. Not an unusual occurrence in Libya, and again feeds into this kind of perception of widespread political corruption. So there are many, many questions about who failed in terms of their responsibilities for the maintenance of this dam. So look, just finally, when you look at the last 12 years and then you look at what's happened in Derna, I mean, the question is, is there any hope or is there any way forward for Libya? I think still the idea that what Libya needs as a first step is elections. Libya needs a a reset. It needs a fresh political legitimacy. Ordinary Libyans having experienced a highly dysfunctional parliament now for almost a decade have shown that they really want change in this respect. Libyans I've spoken to over the last couple of weeks worry that the fallout of these catastrophic floods will mean that the political process is further bogged down, meaning that the prospects of of elections anytime soon remain even more elusive, that basically the fallout from this may cause the, the current political dispensation to dig their heels in even more and claim that the country needs continuity, if you like, and will just basically push the prospect of elections further down the road. I think that elections are what the the Libyan people deserve at this point. The challenge is how to deal with a very entrenched political elite that has enriched itself, and it doesn't want to give that up. And it knows that elections are a threat to that and a threat to their interests. I'm praying, Annabelle, that people come to their senses. (laughs) And uh, for the sake of everybody, this horrible tragedy of this beautiful city with its refined people, I'm praying and hoping people come together and try to negotiate a timetable for election. That's my hope. But I also know that Allah 
is not going to come to our aid if we don't do things on our own. So we hope that the Libyan leaders and Libyan people keep pressuring in a peaceful, collective way, demanding an accountable government, an election and change. And we in the outside, we need to be empathized with them and pressure Western government and Arab government to stop putting gas on the fire and stop aiding all of these factions and avoid this really silly representation about tribalism, regionalism, traditionalism, all of these absurd orientalist views of, of Libyan society. I feel like this mass emotional positive reaction to the tragedy gives me hope. Professor Ali Abdulatif Amida, the founding chair of the Political Science Department at the University of New England. My other guests, Mary Fitzgerald, non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C., and Ethan Choran, former U.S. diplomat and author of Benghazi, A New History. The sound engineer is Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.